Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 21st, 2014, and my guest is Edward Lazier, the Jack Steele Parker Professor of Human Resources Management and Economics at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, and the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Eddie, welcome to Econ Talk. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Our topic for today is the work of Gary Becker, who recently passed away, and I want to start with some brief personal thoughts from both of us, uh, and then we'll move on to, to Gary's work. Um, Eddie, tell us uh, how you knew Gary and when you first met him and your relationship with him over the years. Well, Gary was my idol, actually, as both an undergraduate and as a graduate student. Um, and when I say that, it's it's actually quite startling because Gary was not a, not an old man at the time. In fact, uh, he was just in his 30s, but was such a powerful intellect and such a powerful force on the economics profession that he already had a major impact, uh, not only on his graduate students, but also on undergraduates at other institutions and people following economics in general. So he was a major force. I was a, a student at um, uh, undergraduate at UCLA and I was a PhD student at Harvard. So I, I didn't have any direct contact with Gary, but it was always my dream uh, as a Harvard PhD student uh, to get a job uh, at the University of Chicago uh, and to work with Gary Becker. And uh, uh, that happened. That was my first job and that's how I got to know him. What was your dissertation on and who'd you work with at Harvard? Well, I actually wrote a dissertation on uh, a combination of human capital, which is a labor economics topic, uh, and patent technology uh, issues, which was an industrial organization topic. Uh, I worked with Svi Grilicus, uh, who was my chairman at the time, and Svi was a uh, had been a Chicago PhD and a Chicago professor, so I certainly had that influence. But I also had the benefit of studying with Sherwin Rosen, who visited Harvard uh, during my second year uh, as a graduate student. And Sherwin was a, an enormous influence on me, uh, not only got me acquainted with the, more acquainted with the Chicago style uh, and with Gary's work, but really taught me how to think hard about serious research questions. And uh, I would say he and Gary, at least personally, he and Gary were the, the two most influential people in my uh, intellectual life. And of course, you ended up uh, writing some very influential papers with uh, with Sherwin. Uh, he was um, he was on my PhD committee, and uh, I remember many heart heart to hearts with Sherwin because uh, Gary was my <laughs> advisor, and you didn't get many heart to hearts with Gary, as, as I'll mention in a minute. But when you so you arrived at Chicago, uh, what year was it? Uh, that was. 74, 1974. I was a, uh, a very young uh, assistant professor at the time and uh, pretty green, uh, but with um, uh, a lot of enthusiasm for economics, uh, much of which actually uh, was consistent with the way Gary thought about the world. And I'm sure we'll get a, a chance to talk about that. But, uh, you know, Gary was in extremely enthusiastic and uh, his enthusiasm was contagious. Um, 
but uh, I would say that that uh, you know, in terms of his influence, and we again, I'm sure we'll we'll get a chance to come to that. Uh, but in in terms of his influence, it was absolutely uh, remarkable how many young people. And when I say young, I mean these are people just a few years junior to him. Uh, he was able to affect in in an absolutely profound way. Uh, did you have much interaction with him directly as a colleague? Well, I certainly did once I got there, um, but I do remember a kind of a funny story, actually, and I, I once reminded Gary of this. Uh, I had a job interview with Gary. Gary did not like to go to the uh, American Economics Association meetings. He was a bit of a, a recluse at that time. He was uh, pretty devoted to his work and pretty focused on it and felt that, you know, he was in, in some sense almost a, I don't want to say a loner because he had so many students, but he was going to go down his own path and he wasn't going to be influenced by what others thought was mainstream economics. So he tended to avoid the the big economics meetings and the American Economics Association meetings, of course, was the biggest. Well, uh, I, I don't know if your listeners know this, but the way the job market works in economics is that uh, most of the graduate students attend those meetings and are essentially shopping their skills and trying to find a job by matching with uh, universities that are looking for young assistant professors. And you go from literally from hotel room to hotel room, doing interviews, talking to various universities and hoping that they'll fly you out so that you can get an opportunity to present a seminar. Almost every, anyway, almost every door, sorry, almost every door gets open in those three days. It's a very uh, intense localized in space and time experience, right? It's not like it unfolds over weeks and months. The interviews do, but if you don't get an interview at that meeting, you're kind of unlikely to get one. Uh, more than unlikely, almost <laughs> certain not to get one. So those meetings are intense. They're extremely stressful for the candidates, <laughs> uh, and they're very important. Um, and, you know, I, I hear you chuckling because I think we can all we all think back to, you know, our memories of that. And my memory is a long, long time ago, but it uh, it's still vivid yeah. <laughs> because oh. it is such a, a powerful experience. I think all job hunting is that way. It's For not sure. unique to, to us, but it's um, uh, I think what it, what is unusual is that this is so condensed, as you mentioned, Russ, into this two day period. Anyway, so Gary uh, didn't want to interview me at these meetings. He simply wasn't going to play that game. And so the University of Chicago, where I eventually did get a job, uh, didn't, you know, they weren't going to have a regular interview with me. But Gary agreed that he would meet me at his hotel uh, for uh, a half hour discussion just so that we could get to know each other. And then, you know, he would decide pretty much unilaterally without his colleagues whether they would uh, fly me out to Chicago for a, a more formal interview. Anyway, um, Gary was not staying at one of the hotels that was associated with the uh, American Economics Association meetings. He was off, actually was at a very nice hotel, but he was off on the, it was in New York. He was off on the east side and uh, I had to go visit his hotel. So I went to the hotel and oh, we had- Oh, what fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so we had Were you a little nervous. Were you a little nervous. Uh, yeah. Well, not only nervous. I mean, this was this, of course, was the high point of the whole meetings for me sure. because it was a job I wanted more than anything else. Yeah. And meeting the great Gary Becker, and as I said, I mean, at that time he was, uh, I guess, by then he was already in his young forties, but but he was probably forty-one, forty-two years old, uh, but was already the great man. 
and meeting, you know, meeting Gary was, you know, this was something that of course was, uh, something I dreamed about, I thought about. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure I, I sweated through a number of shirts and, and suits at the same time. Uh, but I got to the hotel at 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and that's when the appointment was. And, um, you know, 11 came, 11.15, 11.20, 11.30, and Gary wasn't there. So finally, I got the nerve to uh, approach the desk and to call up to his room and no answer. Uh, so I hung around till about 12, 12.30, and then finally said, well, you know, I, I guess it's just not going to happen, and, and left. And that was my last interview at the meetings uh, and went off back to, back to Boston. Uh, well, Gary had just forgotten and, um, and, and the reason he had forgotten, of course, was that, you know, this was a, a very minor thing in his life, but of course it was the single most important event in mine. (laughs) And, uh, I remember reminding him about it and he said, Oh yeah, I guess so. I, but fortunately, uh, he uh, remedied the situation and uh, had me out for a, an interview at Chicago. It was a very brief one, actually. It happened over a lunch. Uh, and I do remember that lunch uh, with um, all the Chicago greats, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, Arnold Harberger, uh, about eight or nine people around a circular table at the faculty club, which we call the quad club. Uh, and uh, they uh, they just grilled me over lunch. And uh, fortunately, I, uh, I guess I did well enough so that they, they offered me a job. Yeah, you were, you were the you were the main course. You know, when you mentioned that, <laughs> and you were well grilled. When you mentioned that uh, he didn't spend much time at the meetings uh, or doing the day to day part of the department, it reminds me. I used to say about him that a story that I had heard from George Allen, the Redskins football coach at the time. Supposedly, George Allen said he didn't uh, he didn't send Christmas cards because they don't help you win football games. And it reminded me, whenever somebody would say, oh, Gary doesn't do this or doesn't, I'd say, well, he, of course he does it. It doesn't help him publish economics articles and understand how the world works. He was pretty focused on, on his work. And at, uh, in that, those years he was working, I think, probably on the treatise on the family, which was, uh, he later wrote, really was an exhausting uh, mental effort. Now, I was, his, uh, uh, I was his student. He was my PhD right. advisor. And yeah. I would see him every once in a while. His office was on the, if I remember correctly, the fifth floor. Fifth floor, that's right. It was right. like the attic of the social yep. science building. I think there were only two offices up there at the time, his right. and Saul Bellows. That's I never, right. I never yep. saw Saul Bellow, but mm-hmm. I saw Gary. And when I did see him, his secretary, Myrna, would make me, would give me a 15-minute appointment. I would go sit outside his office. Sometimes there was more than one of us sitting there waiting to go in. Uh, you would go in, he would say, what's happening? What's up? What's, what's your problem? I would tell him something <laughs> I was working on in my dissertation that was, I was struggling with or wasn't sure about. And he'd, he'd say, well, have you tried that, this, the other? And I'd say, oh, those are good ideas. I'd write them down and I'd say, thank you. And I'd leave. And it, I'd usually spend less than 15 minutes uh, in, in his, in his uh, presence, unlike uh, Sherwin, who would chit-chat and, as I mentioned, would, would ask about you and you'd talk about yourself sometimes and he talked about himself he'd tell you about right. things that had gone cha- were challenging when he was a grad student but Gary was all business he had uh, truths to reveal and he didn't spend a lot of time chit-chatting the the other rem- the other memory I want to pass on of his uh, of mine of him was his uh, workshop behavior his workshop was he had a workshop on the family that was broadly defined and he would uh, read the paper in advance as we were all supposed to do and the person giving the presentation was given 
three minutes, no more than five, but just but Gary would say, do you have anything you want to add before we get started? <laughs> so there was no formal presentation, which was very intimidating because it meant for the full 90 minutes or 75 minutes, whatever it was, you had to be like you were at lunch. You had to be uh, grilled about your <laughs> your paper. And it was – we graduate students looked at Gary's copy of the of the workshop paper with awe and reverence because it was – dog-eared and every page seemed to be covered with questions and insights. And we all, it looked like it had been run over by a car three or four times. We always thought maybe we could simulate that somehow, but we knew we couldn't uh, actually uh, reproduce that. So it, he, was a, um, he was an incredible intellectual figure, as you say. And we were all, especially as the students, we were in, in awe and, uh, and a little bit of fear of him. Uh, it's taken me a long time to call I call him Gary. Uh, he was Mr. Becker, as were all the faculty there, um, as was Mr. Lazier, who you, of course, were my <laughs> econ – I think it was 303, math econ uh, teacher in 1977, uh-huh. Uh, spring uh-huh. of 77. Are, are uh, you that old, Russ? I, I am. didn't know you were that old. Yeah. Well, you look good. <laughs> Thank right. you. So do you. Uh, <laughs> I, I was I was surprised to see when you when you graduated as well. Uh, but yeah, those were it was an incredible time. Lucas was working on business cycles. Uh, Gary was was doing his thing. Uh, Sherwin was doing incredible work on that you were going to end up working with on hedonic pricing and superstars and, and labor compensation. Just an incredibly exciting and amazing uh, intellectual environment. One thing, let's turn to his work. And one thing that I want to start as an introductory part, and if you have something to add, I'd love to hear it. Uh, we who were his students knew that he was a very, very controversial figure. Today, he's not. Today, he's honored and respected and um, lauded for his incredible contributions. But in, in the 70s, you know, I had friends at other very good graduate programs, and they viewed Gary as kind of a crank or a kook, um, mm-hmm. just as Milton had been viewed when he first started, uh, Milton Friedman, when he first started his work in monetary theory. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but Becker even more so because he was applying economics to all these crazy things like the family and crime and punishment and discrimination, topics that sociologists were – we're interested in and and not nothing seemingly nothing to do with economics and people elsewhere really saw him cranks not the right word almost as a buffoon and Gary yeah. had no no sense of of humor about that he was totally focused on what he saw as a vision of of understanding the world and he never paid it seemed to me I'm sure he did but he seemed to pay little or no attention to that he just kept going. And I, I'm curious right. if you saw any of that, if, if, if you agree with that assessment of both the way the world looked at him then and uh, how he responded to it. Oh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I, I recall, you know, remember I, I mentioned that I had, uh, you know, studied uh, among the infidels at Harvard. And, um, uh, you know, if, if you think about the people in Cambridge and how they viewed Gary's work, uh, not only did they view him as a kook, I think some people thought that his work was actually immoral uh, beyond being a kook. Absolutely. Uh, for example – you know, thinking about discrimination in cost-benefit terms where you would model people trading off tastes for discrimination against the profit that they would get from discriminating or not discriminating in this case uh, and hiring workers who would be more talented and profitable but might offend their tastes. Uh, many people, that offended their tastes, and they thought that was simply an inappropriate way to be thinking about this. 
one uh, very famous economist, I won't mention his name, but um, uh, one very famous person at one point was asked about Gary Becker, and he said, uh, yeah, I, I love to uh, read Gary Becker. I enjoy American humor. Um, and, you know, when you think about that, uh, it was basically arguing that Gary was really a caricature of what yep. economics should be. Uh, but, it, you know, the the whole thing about Gary's work was he, he was very creative and, and not just the immorality. You know, you mentioned um, people thinking of him as a kook. Uh, you know, in some ways you could see why, because Gary would do things, I, I don't want to say intentionally to offend, but he, he certainly didn't worry about offending. So, for That's example, true. you know, who in his who in his right mind would refer to a child as a consumer durable? All right. I mean, you know, you just wouldn't do that. You bad would marketing that, that, at the minimum. Yeah. Bad marketing, insensitive, yeah. you know. And and Gary almost took pride in doing that because it was a way to think about things in such a radical and uh, unconventional way that, you know, of course, as you mentioned earlier, Russ, really was the thing that, that made his work so powerful is that he did think in, 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 in non-conventional and, uh, and, and revolutionary ways, really. So I think that's, that's what did it. But, you know, when you call a kid a consumer durable, no one's going to uh, find that particularly palatable, especially back in the in the 60s and 70s before people were thinking in these uh, certainly more uh, open and dramatic ways uh, that he taught us to think. And, and now, as you, as you said earlier, are, are now quite acceptable. Yeah, but you make a great point. He, he was kind of asking for it, and I think he probably somewhere inside kind of reveled in it. Uh, yeah. What I thought was interesting is that, you know, sitting in on his workshop week after week, so I saw him reacting to other visiting economists – challenging our work when we had to present and, of course, presenting his own work from time to time, uh, what what he exuded was a very quiet confidence. There was nothing – there was nothing arrogant about him. He was very sure of himself, but he but somehow yeah. he managed to do it without being arrogant. Um, I want to tell a quick story, and I think it's true. You can maybe uh, verify it or not, but I was told that he was an undergraduate at Princeton, and he went there to be a, a mathematician, and he – in his freshman uh, first semester or maybe first year, he found himself doing very poorly relative to his roommate. And so he just sort of thought, well, I guess I'm not so good at this. And he looked elsewhere. And I think he originally started to think about sociology and, and eventually ended up in economics. Well, his roommate, I don't remember his name, but his roommate ended up winning, winning a Fields medal. He was one of the top yeah. mathematicians of his generation. So the fact that Gary wasn't better than his roommate was really not that informative, or maybe it was. Maybe he would only have enjoyed being a mathematician if he had been at the very top. But he, he had a, um, a cerebral ability. You know, when I, when I think about his work, and we'll talk about it now, we'll turn to that, and I see something in it that I think is – say, wrong or leads to an implication I think is, is silly or foolish. I always think, and even now that it's so sad that he's gone, but if, you, if you'd told him anything like that ever, in my experience, and I saw many people much smarter than I am uh, dismiss his work with criticisms like the ones I'm thinking of, uh, you know, a, some implication that seemed inconsistent with the date or whatever it was, he would always have anticipated that that problem and challenge, and he always had an answer his brain was very, very large, and I think that probably sustained him when he saw people that he probably thought maybe weren't as smart as he was uh, saying his work was worthless and, and got getting their respect. 
Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the, the point that you made earlier uh, when you were talking about Princeton and, and competing with his roommate that eventually earned the field medal, uh, you know, I, I think that Gary actually did make the right choice because while he might have been a decent mathematician, uh, that was not his strength. And if, you know, if you Absolutely. think back on his work, it, it's not that he had such great formal skills. You know, this is not a guy who was a, a terrific uh, either formal mathematician or even modeler in the, in the sense of kind of standard or now, now what is standard economics, game theory, and, uh, you know, other kinds of, of formal economic approaches. Uh, Gary wasn't that, that great at that. What Gary's was unbelievable at was creativity. Gary is yeah. probably the most creative mind I have ever known in my life. Um, and, and I've known some great minds, including people like Milton Friedman and George Stigler and Kenneth Arrow, all of whom are, are fabulously creative and, and fabulously important, innovative, uh, thinkers. But, um, when I think about Gary, what really defines him and what differentiates him from the pack is that he was able to think about questions that no one would conceivably think of in the way he did. And he would always add insight. And, and it was an experience where you'd kind of hit yourself in the forehead and you'd say, you know, why didn't I think of that? That's, that's such a terrific way to approach this problem, but I never would have thought of it. Only Gary could have come up with it. Yeah. And I've, you know, drifted away from the areas of research that he was interested in. So I've I've forgotten many of the the subtleties and nuance, and it's very easy to to say about Gary. Oh, yeah, he was creative because he would apply economics to things people hadn't thought thought of before, and that's true. He was that was that was more than creative. That was courageous because, as we've talked about, he got criticized and 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 lost respect from people because of those that ambition and and courageous uh, approach. But the real creativity, to me, took place uh, in, in the actual work. And the subtlety and nuance with which he used the rational choice model. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten much less enamored of rational choice, much more sympathetic to what I think of as a Smithian uh, approach that's less formal. And when I go back and read Gary, I see that he was never, ever um, hemmed in by the formality. He always used the formal models as a way to have these incredible leaps of insight and into possible uh, behaviors and predictions that you wouldn't have come to. And so in a way, he's, um, he's, he's the exception that proves the rule. There's nothing sterile about his application of, of formal models as, as you see in, in, some, uh, in some practitioners. So let's turn to, to his actual work. So his dissertation was in 1955. It was the economics on the economics of discrimination. He turned it into a book in 1957 and uh, – I have some things I want to say about it that I think uh, will be relevant for particularly for listeners who when this topic's been discussed before. But I want to hear your thoughts on it first. You've mentioned already some of the parts that were um, that were shocking to people. The idea that you would model or look at discrimination in some cost benefit framework. Uh, what else did Gary? What What are his important contributions there? Well, what Gary did was he allowed us to think about discrimination in a way that would give very strong and clear predictions about what we should observe in the world. So most people up to that point were just thinking of discrimination as, uh, you know, something that was innate. Uh, and, you know, and perhaps it is innate. Perhaps it is something that's wired, hardwired into into people's brains that they're born with some 
taste for people uh, against people who look or or behave other than than the way they do. But that wasn't the important point. The important point was Gary took that as a given and he said, all right, let's assume that's true. What does that imply about the way these things will translate into market behavior, into prices, into wages, into the kinds of patterns that we observe in labor markets. So for example, one of the things that Gary made, uh, one of the points that he made was that the number of people in a group uh, would be a very important determinant of the discrimination premium that you would see. So let, let me be a little more specific about this because that's kind of a technical way to put it. Um, so let's say you, t you take two groups. You have uh, a large group like say African-Americans and then you have a, a much smaller group um, of individuals, say Jews in the United States. So one is what, 2% of the population, the other is 10, 11% of the population. Well, what Gary said is let's assume that people have uh, a distaste for these groups, people being the, the majority population, say the white population at the time, uh, had, had a distaste for both of those groups. And, and let it be the case, just for simplicity, that the distaste was the same. So it wasn't that people hated uh, African-Americans more than Jews or Jews more than African-Americans. Let's say that was, that was the same. Well, what Gary showed in, in a very simple logic was that if you were an African-American, you would suffer more because you would have to sell your services to people who were more uh, averse to your to your type than the Jews would. Why? Because Jews are only 2% of the population. They can find people who are not so averse to them, but because uh, African-Americans are a much larger group, they have to push harder into the, into the population of potential hires, of buyers of their services in this case. And what that means is they're, they're going further and further down uh, the distribution of people who have tastes against them. And so what you'd expect to see are bigger wage differentials there. So that's an example of thinking about this in a logical, rational way that would give very clear predictions for what we should observe in a labor market. Uh, again, based on, uh, on a taste notion, but saying, well, let's push the logic of this and let's see what this implies. And the nice thing about Gary's work is that it gave you an implication that was both testable and refutable. And we know that in science, if it's not refutable and testable, it's not really a theory. It's not a va valuable theory because uh, you can simply spin any yarn that you want. And so Gary was able to provide us with implications that were testable. And then these implications were tested and found to hold in, in the real world. Yeah, uh, it says in the, um, it's carved in stone actually at the University of Chicago, uh, the quote from Lord Kelvin, that if your knowledge, uh, I, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but if your knowledge can't be uh -huh. measured, it's meaningless. Um, uh -huh. it's, it's slightly more eloquent than that. Uh, I've become a little more skeptical of that as I've left Chicago, but certainly that was because I think we struggle often to actually test our theories with any reliability. But I do think data matters and facts matter a lot. And uh, Gary focused on those – focused us in the profession on those things. And um, the thing I want to say about discrimination is that for some reason – and I, I have some theories about it not worth going into. But for some reason, uh, people who don't like his work uh, have caricatured it to, to uh, say that competition will in the long run eliminate discrimination. Uh, Gary never wrote that. He never said that. Uh, that claim got repeated a, a few months ago, and I went back and I reread the economics of discrimination, which I hadn't read in ages. And 
he says that nowhere in that book. And in fact, the more you read the book, it's it just again, it's such a subtle use of comparative statics of of what happens to one factor if another factor changes, holding other things constant. And um, and yet, uh, Joe Stiglitz, for example, could, has written and he wrote in his uh, when he won the Nobel Prize that that and he footnoted Becker's work, suggesting that Becker argued that uh, that it would disappear. And of course, what Becker wrote is that competition is is good for uh, people who are discriminated against. Obviously, it gives them more choices, like you were just talking about. When you have a monopoly or you have less competition, it's cheaper for people to indulge their taste for racism, and so they're more likely to do it. And competition punishes that. Um, in fact, we see that right now. Uh, Donald Sterling, the owner of the of the uh, Clippers, the NBA basketball team, appears to have been something of a racist, maybe a really awful one. And yet, to be competitive in his basketball team, he hires almost all African-Americans, pays them the market wage, probably despite himself, I don't know, but he has to if he wants to, to have a, a winning team. And it doesn't mean he doesn't discriminate. It doesn't mean that there's no discrimination. It doesn't mean anything ludicrous like that. It just means the competition matters. And somehow Gary's been uh, caricatured about that. And the last uh, substantive uh, email I, I had with him was over this issue and I asked him why uh, he thought why he thought people caricatured him this way. And he said, and he says, I don't know. Um, but uh, if you read his Nobel Prize address, uh, he very explicitly says uh, that in the long run, there's it's very possible for for uh, um, discrimination to persist. And I, I think it's a caricature because it's sort of like, well, the invisible hand solves all problems. But Gary Becker didn't believe that. So um, they were caricaturing somebody uh, that wasn't him or they were caricaturing yeah, I, him that wasn't accurate. I, I agree with you. I think that, uh, again, if you look at the specific predictions, he did have very detailed uh, ideas about how markets would behave and what one observe, would observe in markets. For example, one of the things that he talked about was self-employment and that one way to avoid uh, discrimination would be to become self-employed. So if you were in a group that suffered discrimination uh, and were in the minority, the taste of the majority were against you, then you tend to see those people being self-employed. Uh, one example that, that often comes up is, uh, is male-female differential. Now, of course, females are not a minority, but uh, there's plenty of evidence that they've been discriminated against over time in labor markets. And uh, so one does observe that one that females do tend to uh, be in self-employment, uh, sometimes small businesses, sometimes individual proprietorships, but you do tend to observe that. And that was one of the implications of Gary's early work. So again, I think what Gary tried to do was to stay away from the normative uh, implications, which is, as I said, I think the people who want to make him a caricature and uh, argue that, well, you know, he had this kind of naive view and his naive view led to racism and so forth, uh, were really not thinking about the the topic in the way that Gary thought about it. Gary was really thinking about what are the predictions of this particular kind of behavior? What does it mean? And uh, how can I go out and test this? The the, the the more normative things, not that he didn't talk about normative issues. He certainly had policy views and wrote about policy views. He had a blog. He also wrote op-eds and, uh, uh, you know, well-known newspapers and so forth. But I think for the most part, he was a real scientist and he wasn't focused at, at, on doing policy. By the way, that, that distinguishes him from uh, other 
University of Chicago economist, most notably Milton Friedman, who, uh, although was a, a terrific scientist, uh, certainly undisputed one of the true great scientists of the 20th century in economics, um, uh, also felt that it was important to influence policy and spoke out on policy very strongly and frequently. Yeah, that my, was not Gary. My only footnote to that is that uh, most of Gary's policy work, I think, came after he won the Nobel Prize, uh, which, by the way, of course, made it uh, less expensive for him to get an audience. People were more interested in hearing him. He'd be happy to, I think, to to agree with that. Uh, I wrote in my notes for this conversation, Eddie, that I said he was a microeconomist's microeconomist. Uh, he really <laughs> focused on micro. Later on, he got more interested in macro, a little more interested in – but, and you'll be uh, interested to know that my um, my spell checker in pages corrected microeconomist to macroeconomist, uh, and I had to then <laughs> uh, manually revert to what, of course, is the uh, better field. But that's that's life. Um, let's turn to human capital, uh, which sure. was an incredible pioneer, and he wasn't the first, but um, he's building on some of the work of others. But he was probably the most important. Um, also a radical idea that education is an investment, which sounds totally normal today, but at the time was viewed as tawdry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, Gary once told me an interesting story about this. Again, for your listeners who aren't quite as familiar with the topic of human capital as, as you and I are, the, the basic notion of human capital is to think about the, uh, a person as being essentially like a factory. You know, in a factory, you put machines in the factory, you put capital in the factory to make it more productive. And the theory of human capital said, well, what you do is you put skills, education, on-the-job training in the human body to make it more productive productive and it, it will then yield higher returns. And once you start thinking about that, you say, well, when does it pay to invest in these skills uh, when they're profitable? And that means when the benefits of investing in the skills outweigh the cost. In other words, the returns to say going and uh, I teach MBA students right now at Stanford, the returns to uh, going out, investing, taking a couple of years off, paying tuition, getting an MBA, better be the case that the increased earnings or the job satisfaction satisfaction or whatever else, job security, whatever you want to call it, uh, that you get from making that investment overcomes the two to $300,000 cost that you're bearing in order to do that. So that's the basic idea behind human capital theory. And of course, Gary had uh, much more detail and fleshed out many more implications than, than I'm giving you right now, but that's the basic idea. Now, when he first came up with that idea, uh, as was the case with, you know, with all of this work, it was viewed as, as somewhat radical and, um, somewhat inappropriate, particularly by the education uh, establishment. The education community felt that this was demeaning, that by talking about education as an investment, you somehow belittled the value of education, which of course we know is a, is a, is a moral imperative. It's not just an investment. It's not just something that affects your well-being. This is something that affects your life and the way you can think about the world. So Gary told a story uh, about once going to speak to, I, I believe it was actually a group in Chicago, Chicago Board of Education, um, with with a, a large audience uh, had presented. They had presented some kind of a conference, and Gary talked about his theory of human capital and how that applied to education, and. One speaker after the other, right after him, just got up and criticized him and said, this is a heresy and it's terrible to think about this. And then finally, one visionary among the education scholars or, 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 or among the board members, I forget which it was, said, 
you know, you, you guys are being way too narrow about this. You're thinking about this in the wrong way. What Becker is doing is he's giving us another way to think about the value of education. And this actually makes education more important, not less important. Surely, you know, you, sure you can have all the other reasons for getting education, uh, makes you a better, a more intelligent person and a better voter and a, a better parent and so forth. But Affecting your earnings is another absolutely fundamental way in which education can be valuable, and we should embrace it rather than reject it. And now I would say that most of the education community uh, subscribes to the theory of human capital and doesn't think of it as the antithesis of what they're doing, but rather as a strong complement to the way they think about the world. Yeah, and I don't um, – I think it's important to emphasize that, that Becker would certainly, as, as you alluded to a minute ago, in, informally – Becker would certainly agree that there are lots of returns to the human capital investment beyond your earnings, but that those might tend to be similar over time, whereas the earnings are the ones that are going to change. So when the earnings of women change, that's going to change their incentive to invest in schooling. Uh, as lifespans extend, that might change when you invest. Uh, as interest rates change, that's going to change uh, the return because a lot of the benefits come well in the, into the future. So he, he, I, it's really important – I think to remind folks that he was very focused. I'm just, I don't want to not get this in. I've mentioned this before when, when I saw him honored uh, Chicago maybe 10, 15 years ago. Somebody asked him which economist influenced him the most, and he said uh, without hesitation, he said Adam Smith and uh, Alfred Marshall, which shocked me um, and surprised me. And yet when you look at Adam Smith's work, um, and you go back and you, you can see a lot of it clearly did influence Becker. And I want to quote his Nobel Prize address. He says, unlike Marxian analysis, the economic approach I refer to does not assume that individuals are motivated solely by selfishness or gain. It's a method of analysis, not an assumption about particular motivations. Along with others, I have tried to pry economists away from narrow assumptions about self-interest. Behavior is driven by a much richer set of values and preferences. And he would talk – I remember he would talk about approbation and disapprobation in his microeconomics class, which are very Smithy in terms that Smith uses, meaning approval and disapproval of others and being applauded for what you do and your reputation. And Becker was deeply interested in applying economic tools to non-economic aspects, non-financial aspects of life, and I think that's – uh, was what made his work so important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, there there are so many things that we sort of think of in in some ways as obvious, and then you think about them and you say, "Wait a minute, you know, how would you explain that?" So you were talking about the implications of human capital. The the simplest one is young people go to school more than old people. Now you just think about that for a second. And you say, "Well, that seems kind of obvious. Young people are going to go to school more than old people." Don't but why? You see it. <laughs> yeah. Why is it obvious? Well, you know, because it could the, go the, the other way. It, it could, could be. go right. It could. You could say, "Well, you know, when you're young, you you know, it's you harder to learn. Why don't you wait a while?" Yeah. You're right, exactly. And so, you know, it's not so obvious that that's the case once you start thinking about things, these things in a in a more focused and, and harder way. And, you know, what Gary did in his 
theory, which it was a simple and, and sort of the most obvious implication, but you say, look, if this is an investment, uh, you get higher returns to the investment if you do it early and you get to recoup those returns over your entire lifetime. So if you're ever going to make the investment, make it early and get the returns for a long period of time rather than make it later. I mean, you're not going to see someone a year before retirement investing in an MBA. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, we kind of know that. It seems sort of obvious, but but you have to think about why is that the case. And then, of course, that leads to many other implications, some of which you you, you already um, detailed. Uh, but again, I think that many of the things that Gary thought about where you say, well, listen, isn't, isn't this kind of obvious? When you think about it hard, you realize, no, it isn't obvious at all. Uh, I'll give you another example in another area. I don't know if you're, if you're ready to, to turn to this, but yeah, l- let me fine. give you one on Go fertility. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that Gary observed, he was, uh, one of his early papers was on the economics of fertility. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, the heresy of calling a, a child a consumer durable was in the context of this work. But what Gary was doing, again, was he, he was looking at an empirical phenomenon uh, that puzzled him. And, and here's the phenomenon. If you look back in the 19th century, uh, what one observed is that the richer families were the ones that had lots of children and the poorer families had fewer children. Whereas in the 20th century, that was reversed. The larger families were among the uh, lower income people and the uh, smaller families tended to be among the higher income people. And that was particularly true uh, among the professional class. And the question was why? So Gary started thinking about this and saying, well, wait a minute, is there a a rational way to reconcile these two facts uh, in one simple theory. And that's how he came to the the theory of fertility. Uh, And the basic idea was, let's think of a child as being, as I said, a consumer durable, but basically think of it as something that a family decides to buy uh, or to have uh, as a conscious decision. This is not something that's just kind of mechanical. We're going to think about this as a conscious decision. And then you have to say, well, if it's a conscious decision, uh, you trade off again, the costs uh, of having a child against the benefits from having a child. So there are many benefits from having children and we know what those are. But what Gary focused on was the cost side. And the most important insight is he said, look, one of the things about children is that they are very time intensive. It takes a lot of time to raise a kid. And in particular, it tends to be the mother's time that is involved in raising the child. So Gary reasoned, well, if it's the mother's time that's involved, then you have to ask, what is the cost of using the mother's time? And of course, in economics, one of the most fundamental concepts is opportunity cost. It's the cost of foregoing the next best alternative. And so Gary uh, then reasoned that the opportunity cost of a child was the price of the mother's time and the price of the mother's time is what she could be doing elsewhere and that related to her wage rate. All right, so what does that tell you? Well, in the 20th century, what that says is that when women had the option to work or when most women uh, were working as they are now, uh, what you'd expect is that women with high wages have very high values of time and as a result, it's more costly for them to take time off and to have children, and so they tend to have fewer of them. If you go back to the 19th century, women were not working, and so this mechanism of high-priced women versus low-priced women was the reverse. The women whose time value was high in alternative activities, like working on a farm or doing household chores, 
uh, was was actually the low low priced woman or the poor, the woman who was poorer. And so we had this situation reversed in the 19th century. And so what Gary was able to do with this simple approach was to reconcile uh, two facts. I'll make one more point and then I'll pause, uh, Russ. I'm sorry, I'm talking on here, yeah, but this is, is, great. This, is, this is one that gets me excited. Um, one, of the, one of the most important policy implications uh, that came out of Gary's work, and, it, it, and at this point, again, it's, it's, it's so obvious and so much of a given that people don't even realize that it came from Gary's uh, economics of fertility. And that is that if you want to change population growth rates, let's suppose we go to developing country where population is growing at a very rapid rate. The implication of Gary's work is that the best way to do that is to educate girls. And it has nothing to do with teaching them about birth control or uh, other methods of abstinence or anything like that. What it has to do with is that if you teach, if you educate girls, what you do is you raise the value of their time in the labor market. And as a consequence, women will then voluntarily choose to have fewer kids. And we see this all around the world and virtually every uh, international organization and NGO accepts this as a given. And that's now an important component of fertility policy. If you want to change the fertility rates, you need to make sure that you educate girls. Uh, and so, again, I think that's, that comes right out of Gary's work. It's, it's such an obvious point at this, at this time that we take it as, as sort of given and, and don't even attribute it to Gary. Yeah, and uh, I, I can see Gary in the classroom now. Uh, he pauses. <clears throat> he looks up at, at the ceiling, which he was prone to do when he lectured. <laughs> right. His hand would sort of um, – one of his hands, his right hand probably would, would come up by his – Head and he would shake it to signify a question was coming, and then he'd say, "So, so what would be the implications for quantity and quality, Roberts?" And he'd call on one of us, <laughs> and we most of the time we'd ask him to repeat the question because uh, we'd be stalling for time. But he uh, he was a very um, diligent <laughs> questioner of students in class and a relentless questioner, and most of us uh, got the questions wrong. Uh, I always got them wrong. Uh, it was a very sobering experience, uh, but it was a very educational experience. But one of the things he was obsessed with in, the, in those years, of course, was what he called the quantity-quality trade-off, which, again, doesn't sound so attractive. And as a parent, I, I don't think uh, you sit around and, and drop a, a budget, although some parents do. But his point was that as you get uh, wealthier, you prefer to have uh, higher-quality children. By that, he meant... You, you invest more in their education, in their – not just their financial power, but also their music ability or their sports skills. And as you get wealthier, you want children of higher quality, meaning that have better skills and, and, and a richer life. And that means that any one child is more expensive. And so he talked a lot about how as we have gotten richer in the world, not just the effect of – women's wages on the opportunity cost of of staying out of the labor force because we've reduced that a lot uh, over time. Women now spend less time out of the labor force for obvious reasons. Their wages are higher than before. Uh, but the other factor is the fact that as we get wealthier, we want, we want better kids, whatever that means. It's not attractive to, to say it, but it's, I think, correct. And uh, so we – they're expensive, so we tend to have fewer. So family sizes – fall with income independent of uh, the wife's wage. I, I think I have that correct. Is that, can you speak to that? Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 right. So, so uh, the the quantity quality trade off is, and again, those words are, uh, you know, again, I yeah, I go back to saying I I wouldn't say intentionally antagonistic, but Gary never worried about whether (laughs) whether that would antagonize people or not, and it it surely would. I mean. (laughs) You know, if you if you think about you know thinking about trading off the quality of your what do you mean by the quality of a human? Isn't isn't that you know isn't that immoral to talk about the quality of a human? Don't we think of humans as you know Infinitely all uh, all being created or yeah. equal and so forth? So so I think you know Gary uh, what but he, what he did mean was measurable aspects of what he called quality. And again, the the kinds of things that you're talking about inputs expenditures that you'd make per child. So the question would be uh, you know would some family choose to have fewer children and spend more per kid uh, rather than having many children and spending less per kid. Uh, and that was a trade-off that people would make and would make rationally. And what he modeled uh, in his treatise on the family was this trade-off and how that would uh, evolve over time and in cross-section as you look from one family to another, how we'd see it in different countries, different levels of income within a country and so forth. And And again, these implications were not only very specific and predictive, but they actually turned out to be right. And I think that's the most important point about it is that some of these things that sounded just totally wacky when he first said them turned out to be right. And that's how he won his critics over. I think it was that, uh, it wasn't that, you know, people said, Oh yeah, this is a cool way to think about it. I've changed my mind on the terminology. It was that what Gary showed was he had a better theory uh, and his theory was better because it predicted what we observed in the real world a lot better than what anybody else had. Uh, yeah, we should probably say something briefly about the rotten kid theorem, which is another um, <laughs> uh, slightly um, jarring uh, uh, description. So uh, Gary suggested that uh, there'd be sort of an invisible hand working within a family that if you weren't so nice and you didn't care about your siblings or your parents, you might act as if you do. Uh, because of transfers the parents could make to you, either of money or time or attention, uh, if you were, um, it would be in your interest for the family to thrive. If there was a residual claimant, again, to use technical language to raise a few feathers, uh, the parents say, uh, or the patriarch or matriarch who kept kids in line. Absolutely. So the the whole idea behind a rotten kid, the rotten kid theorem is. Um, even if the kid is inherently bad and does not have warm feelings about his brothers and sisters, and that's probably true of all of us, at least at some stages in our in our childhood where we want to take a punch at our brother or something. Uh, what Gary showed was that may be true, but because the parents care about the kids, what they will do is uh, they will transfer resources from one child to another, not so much as punishment, it's not explicit punishment, but rather because if you bring the welfare of your brother down, it's it's necessarily the case that the parent has to compensate that for that because the kid, parent loves that kid. And as a result, the parent will compensate and reduce the welfare of the offending uh, sibling in this case. And that induces the child to do the right thing. So it's not exactly a punishment strategy Explicitly, but it turns out to be one, and that uh, in doing that creates the right incentives. Uh, by the way, Russ, you know when you raise the rotten kid theorem and you think about punishment, this is a another thing that connects Gary's work. You know, one of the things that we see is that some of the same basic themes that came up in one line of research came through in a large number of other uh, areas. So, for example. 
Um, you know, when, when you think about uh, punishment, you say, well, you know, Gary wrote a very important piece of work called Crime and Punishment. Uh, and the, the Crime and Punishment paper, obviously, you know, picking up on uh, the previous Russian author on that was... Dostoevsky. Uh, yeah, Dostoevsky, sorry. It's an unusual... Uh, was, um, it was an unusual um, literary illusion for Gary, I have to say. Uh, it, it was. I, I don't think he read a was. lot of Russian literature as an as an adult, because I do think he was kind of focused on that economics thing. But he he had somewhere come across it. It, it, it was, and it, it was you know it was one of I would say. Um, most of his titles were not particularly cute. Uh, no. That was one of the few yeah. that was. I mean, they were pretty, you know, the economics of fertility, you know, the a treatise theory, on the family. A theory you know, of social theory interactions. Human. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of boring stuff. Yeah. But crime and punishment was kind of sexy. Yeah. Anyway, um, but the whole idea there in crime and punishment was to think about how do I model deterrence? How do I model behavior among criminals? Now, uh, you know, when you think about deterrence, we all think about deterrence these days, but in those days, people didn't think about it. In fact, they thought, well, criminal behavior is just an abnormality and criminals don't think about these things in rational ways. They just, you know, they behave irrationally. That's why we call them criminals. Uh, well, Gary said, no, that's not the right way to think about it. What we want to think about is that uh, even though there may be some irrationality in this, criminals do take into account the costs and benefits of their actions. And if we do that, what we'll understand is if we raise the cost of taking these actions, we'll, uh, we will deter criminals from engaging in those. So he focused on two components of it. One was the penalty associated with being convicted of a crime, and the second was the probability of being detected of that crime. And what he showed was that there was a trade-off between the two. And so um, one thing you could do is you could have a very low probability of detection, but that would require high penalties. Now, I, I remember an example, uh, my personal example, when I was a, an undergraduate, I had a a job in my undergraduate days at UCLA. I worked at the uh, UCLA hospital and I worked in the um, housekeeping department. And uh, I was I was a clerk uh, and I, I remember, you know, keeping the time cards and so forth of, of the various workers there. But I'm getting nervous, I Eddie. I'm getting nervous. Uh, well, is the statute of limitations run out on whatever you're going to describe next? Are you okay? Yeah, on this? no, no. Okay. This is this is all right. Don't okay, worry about it. This is, I didn't do anything <laughs> illegal. Uh, but I worked for the. I worked. My my boss was the head of the department. It was a terrific man. I learned a, a, an enormous amount from him. Uh, but one of the things that they did uh, uh, was. Uh, they had what I thought was an absolutely extreme punishment. And the punishment was, um, this was a, a swing shift. So swing shift means, you know, you come in at five and you'd leave at one in the morning. And so the hospital at that time was pretty quiet. No one was around. The patients, of course, were there, but very few others. And so what would happen is occasionally uh, the janitors would be caught sleeping on the job. It's a hospital. There are lots of beds there, you yeah. know, so they'd be caught sleeping on the job. The penalty for being caught sleeping on the job was immediate term. And to me, that seemed absolutely draconian. And, yeah. and the reason it seemed draconian is, you know, how much is the guy stealing from you by sleeping on the job? So he takes a half hour nap. You know, his wage rate at that time was about, you know, $2.30 an hour. So he stole a $1.15 from you in, in labor value and you fire the guy over it. Well, 
the reason, of course, that they did this is because the probability of detection was so low. And so it was so difficult, you know, people could hide in various places throughout the hospital. It was so rare that you would actually catch someone uh, engaged in sleeping on the job that when they actually did catch someone, they would make an example of him. In other words, create a punishment that was so high that it would have a deterrent effect. And that was the reason for doing that. Gary made that argument rational. Now, there are other things that we think about in that context that you worry about. I mean, the whole notion of cruel and unusual punishment may fly in the face of this because it means that you punish one person uh, far far more than the cost of that particular crime. It disturbs our sense of morale. I've even mentioned that on the program before. Uh, I don't remember which episode, but – and this is – actually, as I was preparing for this conversation, Eddie, I thought – this would be one of those things where I'd say, but but Gary, that's just – that's ridiculous because – and I'm, sh- I'm sure he had something thoughtful to say about it. Uh, I don't know what it was, but uh, I'm sure he wouldn't go, oh, wow, I never thought about that. That would bother people, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, he, he's well, thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he cer- he certainly thought about. It. I mean, the, the the obvious way to to think about this, you know, again, remember Gary's paper, this was the first pioneering paper on the topic. And so just even laying out the concept and even thinking about this in a rational way was just profound. And then you say, "All right, well, wait a minute. What about this and what about this?" And it started an entire literature. The whole, you know, the whole uh deterrence literature in law and economics is based really on this paper, is derived from that paper. And People say, well, what if people are risk averse? What if you make mistakes, for example? You know, what happens if sometimes you punish a person inappropriately? He actually wasn't sleeping. He was just, you know, happened to be cleaning behind something, looked like he was in the bed or something, and you, you know, you fire the guy or you execute someone who is innocent. Obviously, that has a very high cost, and we want to avoid those. Gary did think about those things and, and certainly would modify the, you know, the, the simplest basic theory. I mean, Gary thought about things more deeply deeply than just about anybody else on any topic and never, you know, he would, it would never be the case as you just pointed out, Russ, that you'd say, well, what about this? And he'd say, oh yeah, you know, I never thought about yeah, that's that. A problem. I mean, that was oh. so rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, right. Well, talking about crime, so, we're almost out of time. I just want to have one more point about yeah. crime and then we'll finish up. He had sure. a lot of fascinating things to say about, uh, employee theft and, uh, getting people, I think he called it malfeasance, people do, performing poorly and, uh, you think about uh, going back to basketball for a second, recent scandal in, um, in the NBA a few years back when a referee was caught gambling on uh, games or taking money from gamblers to make a few calls here and there that would be um, – that would swing a game. And Gary's mm. point early on, I remember this vividly. I think it was his class. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's his class. But I remember vividly in a class talking about the fact that, well, that's why you have to pay them a lot. You pay them a lot because it's very hard to detect. So what you want to do is raise the price – of them getting caught and losing their jobs uh, or being suspected of, of not being a good referee and losing their jobs. So if you look at sports referees, they're all, quote, overpaid. They're, they're paid a lot more than it would take to attract quality people into the job. But that that is a – it's like a, 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 a golden um, handcuff to keep them yeah. – uh, to keep them honest. Just the other day, I was talking to people at dinner uh, shortly after Gary had passed away and uh, – Somebody said, uh, well, there's a lot of theft at, in these big box stores by employees. And I had a, a Beccarian thought, which is, yeah, but that lets them pay lower wages than they otherwise would. Because, of course, if, if you're in an environment where you know you can steal stuff, uh, the competition to get at those jobs tends to bid down the wages. It doesn't fully offset the losses from the theft. Uh, I'm sure we could show. But thinking that way is 
I think was what I learned, one of the things I learned from Becker, which was incredible power of incentives, but incentives embedded in markets and how they interact. And that I think is, uh, to me, the thing I learned the most from. The other thing I just add, which I know you meant to talk about and we didn't have time, is his emphasis on time. He wrote a, a, a very influential paper on the importance of time and in, in, in our demand for goods because we don't just look at the money price. We look at the time price it takes to consume them. And he focused economists on that, which is uh, you know incredibly important. And I think those two things, his courage in applying economics, I'm going to say three things, his courage in applying economics to things that aren't thought of as economics, his skill and nuance – in using prices and incentives and markets, and then not just looking at money price, but time price and the full cost, which can include shame and and the Smithian uh, aspects from the theory of moral sentiments, uh, were really what to me made him um, one of the five greatest economists of the 20th century. It's a short list for those five, um, but for me, it's uh, in terms of influence, not my five favorites. Influence, it's it's Keynes, Friedman, Hayek. And Becker uh, would be the, would be the top four. I don't know who the fifth. Maybe Paul Samuelson for his influence on mathematical economics. But uh, those would be my five. Um, what are your thoughts? Closing thoughts on uh, Gary's influence on you or the profession? Well, just pick up very quickly on what you said earlier uh, uh, about the the just the referee process. There's a actually a more important. I, I, don't know, I shouldn't say more important, but certainly an important application of that, and that's corruption in government. One of the things that Gary pushed on his policy side was that, you know, if you want to have uh, honest government officials, you have to make sure that you pay them a lot. In the same way you were talking about with referees, and yeah. many people, Lee Kuan Yew is probably the best example of having implemented that in Singapore. We had those people are, you know, the government officials are paid very high salaries, and they have a, a government that's, you know, very efficiently run with a minimal corruption, whereas you look at countries that pay their officials lower wage rates and you have much more corruption. So that's an implication, I think, of, of Gary's work. Uh, again, now, you know, you might say some of that's obvious. I, I think it's 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 obvious only after you see it. I think, uh, the one, I think thing I would just, one last thing, I think Gary would add that if you're not careful, though, you pay him too much, you'll attract some of the more productive people into the less productive aspects <laughs> of the economy. So you might want to take a little fraud. And a little corruption. Anyway, go ahead. Close, close yeah. this out. Well, I was just going to say uh, the, the final thought is that uh, Gary was an optimist. And the reason he was an optimist is, is that he, he believed in the importance of incentives and he believed that people would behave appropriately as Adam Smith did. I mean, Gary was an invisible hand kind of guy. And it's not surprising to me that you said earlier that uh, Smith was one of the people who influenced him the most, most. He believed that and he believed as a result that individual behavior, rational behavior and personal maximizing behavior would lead to the greater good. And for that reason, he was an optimist. And, and he felt even in the face of misguided government policy, people would through their strong incentives to maximize their own welfare and that of their children uh, would overcome that and that we would be led to a, a, a greater good. And so I think for that reason, Gary was uh, a positive person and uh, not just in terms of his research, but also in terms of his views of policy. And of course, he was an early guest of EconTalk. You can find that in our archives. We'll put a link up to that episode uh, a link to this one. My guest today has been Eddie Lazier. Eddie, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.